Welcome to the Change Africa podcast, where we bring you stories of inspiring individuals and thought leaders leading Africa's transformation. I'm your host, Isaac Kujudenu Abwa, and together with my co-host, Daniel Merki, we'll be exploring diverse perspectives, challenges, and opportunities for growth and development on the continent every week. Each episode, we delve into a different aspect of African life, featuring knowledgeable and engaging guests who provide unique insights and a fresh perspective on the issues affecting the continent across a wide range of topics from economics to culture and social issues. So whether you're already well-versed in African affairs or you're just starting to explore this fascinating and complex part of the world, the Change Africa podcast is an excellent resource for you. Sit back and enjoy another thought-provoking discussion that will inform and challenge you to expand your understanding of Africa. Hello everyone, my name is Isaac Kujenenuabwa and you're welcome to the Change Africa podcast with my usual co-host Daniel Merki. Today we have another exciting conversation with someone who is telling African technology company stories and putting together insights that allow the world to know about what is happening in the world of tech in Africa and also is actively investing by putting his money where his mouth is. Today we have Caleb Maru with us on the Change Africa podcast. Caleb writes and invests in Africa's tech ecosystem through Tech Safari, which is a media company, and Proximity Ventures, which is a technology investing company where he is a partner. Caleb, you're welcome to the Change Africa podcast. Hey, guys. So good to be here. Exciting. So I see that you have an interesting background. But first of all, tell us, what is your primary connection to Africa? Were you, are your parents from here? What's your connection to Africa fundamentally so people can understand why you're interested in Africa? I'm originally from Ethiopia. So my parents were born there. I grew up in Australia, but I used to travel back a lot as a kid. And then my first like career, I guess, was in policy, in peace and security policy. So I lived in Addis for a while. So that was great. I had the best time. I loved, 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 loved living on the continent and traveling. Yeah, but policy, not so great. So I decided to move out and ended up doing tech about two, three years ago. So when you say policy, not so great, I want you to hold on that because we had a conversation (laughs) recently with someone who's also a policy expert. And after doing that work at the highest of stages, in fact, she was at a U.S. government state department assistant secretary. She was working at the Biden administration and was one of the more prominent public facing people. But after getting her hands dirty in the work, thought it's just a little too slow and he wanted to do something that actually moved the needle of the problem that she kept talking about. It was that a similar experience for you? Yeah, very similar. Sorry, who is this? Who is the guest who? Uh, yeah, Akuna Cook is the guest. Akuna Cook, who is building an exciting company to tell Africa's stories through media. Also, interestingly, she also comes from a policy background now investing in and doing media. And I'm just making that connection. I promise. <laughs> I didn't think about that before. Share her stuff with me. Yeah, that's really cool. We're like the same person. Very similar. Like, I think for me, it was two, three years in peace and security policy, doing stuff that I thought was making a difference, you know, sort of helping, uh, essentially like helping patch up countries after a conflict. So like trying to stop the relapse of war. And I think that experience told me a lot about like incentives and speed. 
or lack of speed. So like it told me a lot about like who's incentivized by what, which institutions are actually like what the actual incentives of institutions are. And then like how, how slowly they move and like what the result of that is, which is like casualties. And it just like left me feeling a bit yuck. And I was like, yeah, like this is important work, but not the sort of work where I feel like I can have a significant impact. This isn't the right word, but it's a bit more like genuine and a bit more straightforward in terms of like the action being done. And I was doing some soul searching while I was living in Addis and I spent some time in this tech incubator my friend brought me over. And I spent time with founders. And this was like the first time that I was like spending time with people who were just like, hey, I have this problem in my community. We don't have ambulances. I'm going to build an ambulance service that like gets, you know, paid by say like wealthy people. And then like we distribute those ambulances in, in local communities. It was just like people solving their own problems, doing it as quickly as possible with like little resources. And I was like, this is, this is an interesting model. It's like real problems being solved by individuals who are just focused on that problem and can move really quick. What happens if you put resources, money, support into those people? Uh, and so that was like the thinking around like startups. And when you use tech as a tool to like really scale that, that becomes really interesting. And then you look at the impact of like tech companies in the US, right? They they have a lot of control. They have a lot of influence in what happens across that uh, that country. I think in the next 10, 20 years, we're going to see the same thing with tech in Africa. Like you look at the impact of an M-Pesa, which is like tech innovation, now has such a grip on Kenya for better or for worse, but at least they moved quickly and they have led, it's led to outcomes. So what I'm thinking is like, how do I support the next 10, 20 people who will go build those things or companies that will build those things? That was the, the thesis. So I left, I left a policy to do that. No, that's very exciting and interesting. What was the difficult challenge that you saw that these founders had at the time of your interaction with them that you thought that you could bring a lot of value to that eventually led to this journey there? What was the most challenging thing that you saw the founders struggle with in that program that you were in? Yeah, that's a good one. Hey, I think like the biggest challenges aren't the ones I can directly solve. I would say maybe the biggest challenges are actually there's finding the right problem. It's like all the things you do as a founder, finding the right problem, finding the right market, like learning quickly and like adapting. It's even harder in Africa because you just have like a 20th of like GDP or earning power. And then it's just like way harder to like, we don't have infrastructure either. Generally, the scope of what you can do is way smaller than the US, you know, developed markets. So there's that. But then there's also like the additional barrier, which is government. Uh, like, you know, I spent time with the founder today. Amazing progress, amazing growth, but just hit with like basically just bullshit from government um, because they're growing so quick. Right. Uh, and it's just like these barriers come up and they're a bit arbitrary. And so the I think that especially in Ethiopia as well, like there's you look at Ethiopia today should have a thriving startup ecosystem. But there's all these limitations by government on like who can invest you need to be a local entity. You can't get money out of there. There's all these problems. And it stems from like regulation. I would say that's the biggest barrier. And some startups or some governments or like countries are doing really well to alleviate those and like amplify startups, which is awesome. But that to me is the biggest barrier to like to startups growing and like really scaling. The stuff I can help with, I don't know. Like I think on my side, I like I've spent a lot of the last few years just thinking about that, right? I started thinking it was like, I started talent. So my last company was an ed tech that taught people how to get into tech roles. It's still going called entry level. And our biggest market is Nigeria. Um, and it's scaling pretty well. But then I realized, okay, I want to help multiple founders. So I started this fund proximity ventures, which invests in these founders and really supports them um, from like zero to one phase. 
And then I was like, okay, this is, this is cool. But I think like money is a commodity. Like there's a lot of money out there. Good founders will find money uh, to, to, to sort of grow their companies. What's something unique I can bring? And I think I was in this interesting intersection where I was trying to explain uh, like African tech to people in Australia and they didn't get it. So I had to really dumb it down. Like what's mobile money? Like people in Australia have no idea what that is. They've never experienced like USSD to like send money, right? So how do you make that very simple and like really understandable? And in breaking down those concepts, I started sharing them online and they started going viral to these like to this global audience. And I was like, maybe this is the thing where like I can uniquely support support founders and our ecosystem by telling our ecosystem stories, but in a way that anyone, the rest of the world can understand and then engage with and then be involved in. And that's like how we built Tech Safari. That was the thesis. So Tech Safari now is like, it's captured the, the ecosystem, which is amazing. But the intention was always like, how do you build the bridge between Africa and the rest of the world, starting with content, but then community, then how do you bring talent over here? Uh, how do you bring money over here? How do you bring opportunities over here? And we're starting to see that happen. So. I think that's the unique thing we can help with. It's not the hardest thing for founders, but it's it's something that's, I think, fairly important. There's a lot of things that you've put in there. So let's try and unpack that, starting from Proximity Ventures and the journey to raising the first fund. Tell us how much you raised and how difficult or easy it was for you from the perspective of a GP so that we can get some insights for someone that is thinking about that. So probably someone also had this light bulb moment and says, I want to be able to help African tech founders be able to raise more money or invest in the ecosystem. What's some insight that you can share from your journey, especially at that zero to one phase where you were trying to also get your own fund going? So this is, I don't know, like, I'll be honest, we didn't raise much. It's less than a million dollars. And it was really easy because it was 2021, an amazing year if you're raising anything. 2021, man, like look at all those raises. They were insane. The revenue multiples, the due diligence, and we're feeling it now. Like you're you're seeing all these companies get screwed. So it wasn't hard because money was pumping. Uh, We were fortunate. Investors in our previous company, or like in our existing company, were like really interested in the continent. And we were like, hey, we can show you more because we know a lot of these founders. We help them hire, you know, just back us. And so we raised a small fund. What I learned from that is, so the intention is always raise a bigger fund. And I spent, it's, it's been the goal for the longest time. I've talked to a lot of emerging fund managers. I've talked to a lot of, uh, you know, more experienced fund managers. I think one of my biggest learnings to be just straight up is like people who do venture are generally wealthy already. And this is something they're doing for fun or something they're doing because it's easy. It's not natural for fund managers to spend two, three, five years like raising a fund. Uh, and if it takes you that long, there's probably more impactful things you could be doing for startups because money is out there. If you're a good startup, you'll raise money. And if you're not a good startup and you're not raising money, then there's probably like a narrative thing that's happening there where you're not able to play the game, which might also just mean you're not a good startup. I think good founders can craft a narrative and raise funds. So it's not that there's not enough money. It's more that there's like, you also look at African VC, it's like how differentiated are these funds? Are they differentiated because there's not enough money on the continent and so people just have to go to them? Or are they differentiated because they have a thesis or a thing they can support with? Like how truly valuable is a fund when they invest? And to me, there's a handful that I'm like, okay, that's really clear. The rest, I'm just like, I don't know like why I'd go to you for, for money unless I knew exactly, like, I don't know what I'd get from this other than money. I don't know. I think like when thinking about a fund, it's like, what's your unique thing that you can bring that will actually be valued in the ecosystem? What's your moat, your edge? Um, and then what's your like, why are you doing it? Um, and like, how hard or easy is it? Because 
yeah, like I know some of the most experienced people who have tried raising funds for like over five years and still can't do it. They know a lot of people, but they can't. It's like, why would you spend five years doing that? You could probably do something that's like going to have a similar amount of impact. Yeah. And then I think back to Tech Safari, like the thesis, the idea was like, why don't we build something truly valuable? If a fund comes, great. If not, that's fine. We're still doing something valuable, sustainable, like a growing business that's going to help um, the ecosystem. Just to um, let me understand. So you're saying, yes, so you're doing Tech Safari now, but that means the the plans for the second funds are still in the works. Is that right? Yeah, probably. Yeah. So right now, we're synd- I mean, we still have like fund runway, so we're still actively investing. And we're also like, our checks are usually 20K, like between 10 and 20K. So small checks, trying to do a lot of them. But now we can do up to... 100 200k because we have a syndicate through tech safari um so we have like an active investor community of people from around the world who want to invest in african startups yeah so that's really exciting too like that that's been awesome and i think that's a fun thing i want to do that for a while before going for a fund it's also just like you know you think about the things to build like man everyone likes building everyone likes action and doing it and saying it all that but like it's like what's the right thing to build today in this market it's not 2021, right? So probably not raising money. <laughs> like that's probably not the right thing to do in 2023. The right thing to do is build something that's like a moat or like something that sets you apart or differentiates you and is like valuable, is like generally low cost, right? Um, and and that can be sustainable. And so this is like a great market to build a like a media company, like the one we're building. And, you know, eventually there'll be a great market to raise a fund in, uh, but that's not right now. So I'm definitely not going to focus on that. Okay, understood. Because I wanted actually to ask, Ozu, but you say you still have some runway, but I was wondering in terms of, yes, launching the first fund, maybe what are some of the insights or surprises that you have seen and what would you approach differently in, in the next fund? Yeah, so, okay, so... Great, great question. We're doing a portfolio review yesterday, so a very timely question. Uh, we've seen a lot of deaths, like startup deaths in our portfolio, and then a lot of companies that are like on the edge. And it's been so interesting seeing like which companies are experiencing that and then which ones are like making it through and how. I think like what I've learned the most is like when you have these, I also like, I don't know, I feel like the tone I'm giving is like very real and also a bit cynical. I don't want to be that I'm a pretty positive person, but I try to keep it real when I talk about like our space, right? And I think that's that's important. 2021, 22, like that whole experience, that that like era, being a founder wasn't just something you do because there's a problem. It's something you do because you want to do it. It's a lifestyle, there's status. Um, and I think like we've seen the differentiation between founders that like were solving a real problem and people who just wanted to be founders. So I, I think that's like the best way to put it, right? And the folks who just wanted to be founders, like they're not really around. Um, the folks who are like, yeah, it's a real thing, it's a real problem and we're here to fix it and we're dedicated to like solving this with our unique insight or, or our unique like skill set. Uh, they're doing super well um, or they're surviving at least and, and trying to figure out the next thing. I think the other thing I realized is like kind of two things. Like we look really deeply at markets. Like we try to understand markets really well. I'll spend like a month, like I'll spend a lot of time with a founder just trying to understand like what's this market? Is it real? And I think the real opportunity is like where you can find offline, fragmented, tough, like messy markets. And you can kind of like organize them in some way or help deliver value in some way. But these offline markets, you don't, you can't Google them. You have to go out to the field. You have to go to the markets. You have to like go and see these people and meet them. 
And that's the best way you can gauge like how real it is. And I think that's, that's the work that we couldn't honestly, like we couldn't do because I was based in Australia for a lot of last year and it was hard just researching that. I think that's why like now being on the ground, living in Kenya and Nairobi, we have this edge and we can really understand who we're working with. Then the second is like, I index really highly on the founders. I think founders, like it's amazing seeing, like we invest in this really like baller team and They've done it before. They've done it for like 15 years. Now they're trying it again, but like with a really specific niche and focus. In six months, like the amount that they've done is more than like most startups in like three years. And they just know exactly what to do. So I think like that's the value of a team. And I'm kind of tossing up like, do I prefer really experienced teams who know exactly what they're doing? Or do I want to take bets on founders who maybe are unproven, but could do it? And so that's kind of the discussion we have a lot at Proximity. Yeah, I mean, I was just coming back to something that you just said in terms of the research. I was just wondering about, that seems to say that um, between Tech Safari as well, there's some synergies, at least on the research side for you in terms of what you do with funding ventures, even though I don't know, that's probably not the, the initial starting point of why you did it. And now, as you said, also by um, being on on the continent. So... When you say these fragmented markets, maybe I was just wondering if you could give an example, maybe not the next one you're investing in, maybe you can go backwards or something that you have already shared and just describe such a fragmented market, that offline market. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's say like Airbnb, right? So if you want to get accommodation in Kenya, let's say, we categorize it into two things. There's like online Airbnb and there's offline Airbnb. And that sounds weird, but like, Bear with me. If if I want to go to like the coast to Mombasa and like stay in a nice place, I'll go to booking.com or I'll go to Airbnb and find a spot. And it's like, no worries, pay 50 US a night. If I actually live in, if, if I'm like the average Kenyan uh, looking to go to Mombasa, I probably wouldn't use Airbnb. Instead, I would hop on Facebook and look up like Airbnb Mombasa. If you do that, I actually have a screenshot. If you do that, you'll get like five, six different groups. And in these groups, they have these like service departments or like guest houses or like villas, but they're like probably like 30, 40, 50% cheaper than what you'll find on Airbnb, but they're offline, meaning like they're not on a centralized marketplace. And so you have this massive, massive, like fragmented market of like individuals who just like rent out their spare rooms or their spare guest houses, but don't want to list on these online marketplaces because it's not how they're discovered. Um, They're discovered on these offline channels, like well, online, but like not marketplace channels like WhatsApp or Facebook or Instagram. It's actually really funny. Like we're going to this uh, festival in for New Year's Eve in Kalifi, which is this really beautiful like sort of town on the Kenyan coast. And there were like no Airbnbs. And so we just looked up like Villa Kalifi on Facebook and like we had all these options. And now we booked a place like that and it was cheaper. So it, it, it's just like a unique thing you probably wouldn't think about, um, but there's a lot of value in helping those guys who are not online, like with B, like with the B2B, basically tooling to help them schedule, help them collect money, help them receive Impesa. You can't do that on Airbnb. Help them with their full stack of operations. And there's a startup that we're looking at that is doing that really well and has insane traction because they found this offline market. But we had to talk to these guys. We had to talk to the to the owners of these like houses, guest houses. We had to talk to, you know, while well, I was like on the coast, we were talking to people who own these spots. Um, about the market to really understand it. So so hopefully that example made sense, but like that's an example of like an offline market you probably wouldn't think of, but actually is huge and actually bigger than the online market. 
That's a very interesting insight. I want to go back to something you had said previously, that good startups or good entrepreneurs will always raise funding or they will be able to carve out a narrative that enables them to do that because they understand the game. If you would unpack that for me, the chasm between what a good startup is and the expectations of the investor market and what they want to hear in enabling those companies or founders to raise money. Because, you know, you are all out about saying the artists. Do you need a certain narrative to be able to capture the imagination of investors based on what they want to hear or just focusing on how, for example, you want to present your startup and how you think your value to your audience as works sells your company, which is the right route or which is the easier route or the good thing to do? I'm not sure if I'm having the question rightly. But I want to really understand that synergy. It's such an interesting one. It's such, I have like so many takes on this and it's hard to sort of distill them because there's, there's examples of all of it working. So there's examples of people like, well, not Adam Newman, like, I don't know, like try to pick a good example of someone who like bullshits, but actually gets stuff done. Maybe Elon Musk, right? You need to just say or do shit that's wild and just back it up and back yourself and like sometimes you can actually achieve that, but you don't get the resources, you don't get the team, you don't get the buy-in unless you sell a vision. I've also seen founders who don't do that and are just very straight up, like this is what we do, we're not joking, this is who we are and we're going to stay true to that and they've done well as well. But I do think like startups is like a game of like, how do you stack everything you can in your favor, like every odd you can in your favor? Because statistically, like you said, Daniel, like we're not supposed to win, like especially on your first startup, like it's really hard to build a successful startup. So like, how do you like sort of add every advantage you can? And I think the best founders able to tell a story that like that really speaks to, they're able to sell a vision and tell a story that speaks to like the team investors and they can play the game because they know that that's how they get more resources and those resources increase the odds of them winning so i think it is important for founders to know that a lot of my work as someone who tells those stories tries not to bullshit uh, like as much as i can uh, and be as real as possible but like i i do tell those stories is like i work with founders to help them tell a narrative or explain what they're doing in a way that makes sense to everyone and it's really exciting. And that's like a lot of what I do. So I think it's it's an extremely important skill set. And, and, you know, you think about it, like, how do you get a... The difference between like fundamentals, good fundamentals and like a good business and like, and like, and not being able to sell your story versus like having that and being able to sell your story generally comes out in like, how does your team interact with you? How high of a valuation can you get? Can you actually get a good deal or raise more money? Like, how much do people believe in this and want to, like, talk about what you're doing? And all those things really contribute to a startup success. So I think it's, it's important. And then the last note is, like, the story you tell to your customers does not need to be the same story you tell to your investors. In fact, it shouldn't. These are two different narratives. And it's not like you're being untrue to one or the other. But you need to be able to speak both languages. On both languages, what is the language that investors speak or want to hear in your perspective? Uh, it's growth. I think it's one of growth. It's one of like solving a real problem. It's one that's like real in, in the sense like it's not just like, oh, this is what we're doing and this is like how many users we have. It's like, no, no, these are our real metrics. This is like the market, the thing that we're tackling and this is how like we grow, how, how we expand this to our next milestone. They want to understand that in real terms and they want to understand your business model in a simple way. 
and they want to know that you can you actually understand what you're doing at, at the core and that you have domain expertise i think that's it yeah and then also that you're confident and you can present like it's incredible watching founders like pitch like founders that can pitch pitch well is just like one of the most incredible like so, so fun like so fun to watch because it's like they have control uh, of their narrative they know what they're doing they have confidence um, and then watching that next to someone who maybe doesn't have like a full view or a grip is like it's a really different experience you look like you disagree daniel <laughs> no it's funny no i was thinking about one of your articles which doesn't play directly into that but i just had a flashback when you about your Y Combinator article. So when you say that the pre-seed funds, the like basically pre-seed funds sell to so seed funds, seed funds sell to the next, then A to B to C, which doesn't directly speak to, let's say the founder now pitching directly to an investor. But my thought, that, that's, that's why I was looking, not skeptical to what you are saying. I was just trying to relate that at how maybe does that change at different stages of, what the game becomes and how you um, and maybe how you sell it because I guess you the, the valuations probably also need to keep telling a story of growth so that's where my mind was at so what I'm interested in hearing is I want to know how that narrative is formed for companies for example that are in say an AI intrigued world where investors are putting a lot of money into AI for example and people might not necessarily build things yet and still get funding. How would you just oppose that with the idea that people need to build slow, get traction and raise money? What is that just a position of a reality check, especially for an African founder? Because I think that I'm, a, I'm someone who's building a company. When I started out, right, if you are fascinated about hearing more about the funding stories and about reading TechCrunch articles. You may get lost in the expectation of what real building of a company looks like and how fast or how slow you could get a funding going or how that even incentivizes the average person to want to go into tech as again, fast escapade to getting a fund or not understanding fully the realities of building a tech company because of, for example, how the storytelling tends to focus more on successful fundraisers. Okay, let me try to just like spin that question back. So it's like, how do you juxtapose like hype or like, you know, AI latest trend and raises next to like what it takes to build a real business? Is that kind of, yeah? Okay. So I don't know, man. Like, I think again, like, I think it comes back to the point a bit, where, which is like two years ago, it was just cool to be a founder. And like people who were opportunistic would jump on the opportunity to raise money and build something like in a space. And you have a lot of like competitors or like a lot of repeats to models that we've seen, especially on the continent where it's like, you're like another one of these, like another payment company, like stuff like that, where it's like, you're getting repeats a lot because it's, it's, it's hyped. I think that's part of it though. Like when there is an opportunity to build something uh, or like there's a unique opportunity to raise money and like, and try to build something and take, make the most of, of, some, of an opportunity, you're always going to have founders flock there. It's like, that's just how the game works. So I, I don't think it's like unnatural for this to happen. Uh, I think it's pretty normal and we'll see it a lot all the time. And then people jump on those trends too, because they're like, this is interesting. Maybe we can do it. Like, I think it was YC, like their last cohort had like a crazy percentage that were just AI companies. Um, and then no Africa, like three African companies compared to like, I think 15 the year before. 
Um, so, you know, like it, everyone jumps on the trend and they're like, what is it? What could it be? It was crypto like two years ago. That's the game. I, th- I think that's just the game. And you see who's real and who isn't like a few years later. And it's the job of a good investor to understand who's real and who isn't um, in that game. Like who's opportunistic and who's actually done it and like gets it and can run with it. Yeah. So I don't know. That's my take on the first part. Building a real business, like in this market, at least like we don't, I don't think people are going for like idea stage startups unless they're very experienced people, Um, meaning they probably have a real business and they probably have like good metrics or like metrics that work if we're investing in them or they have some sort of traction or something that indicates that they will have a real business. So yeah, I don't know. Like, I think it's a bit of both. Like it's, it's our job to like filter out like what's real and what isn't. But I think people who play the game, like you can tell, I, you can tell like who's in it for the TechCrunch feature, who's in it because it's like, oh, this is like the right thing to do. Or like I'm going to copy the Silicon Valley model and just repeat it. Like it's not too hard to spot. Okay. Now let's talk about Tech Safari. You've been writing stories to give insights into the African tech ecosystem. One of the most exciting, most hyped sectors of Africa's tech ecosystem has been in the fintech space. From your insights of writing about fintech, learning about fintech, what do you think is the both the present and the future of African fintech? Um, what are some of the exciting things that you see in there that would shape the Africa, the future of African fintech? And maybe also some insights of companies that are well less founded like Money Point that you have written on. And what was the insight of learning about companies like that and how they've been able to find mass market success without necessarily using the the VC route at first? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. Fintech, it's it's interesting because like people are like, oh, it's so overhyped and it takes all the money and whatever. It's like it, you can't do shit if you can't pay for stuff. Like no, nothing's moving if you can't pay for things, right? So like I think payments within Fintech has been the main thing that's been, being built right now, like the core thing. So like you have Flutterwave, you have Wave, you have cheaper cash, which is remittances, I guess, um, Paystack, MoneyPoint. And these are all centered around payments. I think what we've learned is, yeah, these businesses take a while because you have to like, you look at like MFS, right? They, they, they're like a payment gateway um, that connects mobile money to like other services. And they had to go and like connect with every telco to get all these connections. And it took them years and years and years. They almost failed at m- like many points, like running out of money. And then once like everyone is ready to be like, okay, now we want to like link bank cards to M-Pesa or like we want to like uh, let you buy insurance through Momo, uh, like uh, like all these opportunities came up. And so it's this sort of long grind of like building out distribution, connections, and it takes years and years. Like MoneyPoint spent years doing like just getting into um, these sort of small businesses um, and doing like cash in, cash out as a, as a wedge to get in. Um, all these things to eventually control payments. So it's a really slow grind. It's one that like you can't really replicate quickly. It takes a long time to replicate. And now I think if you want to replicate it, you're probably going for like some niche or underserved market, which is not already serviced. So yeah, I think that's that's like something I've sort of learned from just covering it. I do think like what we're starting to see is how do like, yeah, we're starting to see like a few things in payments, I'd say. One is that I think within all the things around fintech, like the strongest part of fintech is payments because payments is like a source of truth. It's like what money goes in and and also like what money comes out too. And so you can get the data that you need on a company to eventually do other things through payments. And we've seen a lot of companies start like with lending first or accounting first or like 
insurance first, whatever, uh, eventually try to like build out banking services. And I think the most successful companies have started with payments because they get like a really strong relationship with their customer that way. They get all the data and then now you can learn really well. You can like provide other services really well because you have the source of truth. I think when you start with other forms of like fintech, it's really hard to really build that relationship. And so that's why a company like MoneyPoint can have like, you know, multi-billion dollar loan book if they want it because they just, they know their customers and they know who can pay back and they can collect directly from, from revenue. So I think that's another learning I've had. And yeah, I still think we're a while away from payments getting there. Um, we still have so much more to go. And like, we're probably going to hit a point where like, eventually, if you're not digital as a merchant, you're actually going to be excluded. Like you won't, people won't be able to pay. So there's a point where like, people are like, yeah, payments are growing, but they're going to grow faster because like eventually merchants will be shut out if they only accept cash. So you need to have some form of digital or like mobile money payments. What about companies in the fintech space like Piggy Tech and how have they been able to build that grassroots community? You talk about community, even with building tech safari, that you tell the story, you build a community around it. And I think for me, what I've seen in companies like Piggy Tech is that they've been able to build a very strong community of people, of believers, really. People who, especially if you look at their Twitter feed, when controversies come up, normal customers that are willing to literally die for the, the companies online. What are some of the insights that you get from companies like that? Yeah, I think it's awesome. Like community building in like and personal finance is awesome. Need it in Africa. Like really need it for, you know, I guess a consumer class that like doesn't earn nearly as much and like needs more control, like visibility on their spending. So it's amazing as an idea. I don't know if I believe in savings products as like as true venture scale models. Piggyvest has done super well to get all the deposits they need. But like, how do you make money on that? You take a percentage every year, you need an insane amount of deposits in order for that to be like a, a venture scale billion dollar company. And you think about how much money you're actually holding. It's not that much. It's not like, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. It's not like $50,000 over like 10 years. It's probably more like, I don't know, 2000, 5000. So I think it's, it's a really, that's like the, the model there, like as just savings product is like a bit tricky to build a venture scale business out of. You can build a big business like Piggy Vest, but like, you know, can they be a billion dollar company with just that like TBD? I think you can layer in some really cool services though. Once you have that relationship and you, you know how much money they have, you can probably lend against that. You can think about like, yeah, other value add financial services too. I think the community aspect is really cool though. And that's the best way to scale a fintech like that. But I don't know. I would say like the real, I'd say the, there's definitely opportunity in B2C fintech, but that is really expensive and really hard to do. You see how big like shipper cash and like waves rounds are and how much they spend to get customers and they're losing money. Like they bleed money as they do it because it just costs so much to acquire someone and it takes a long time to pay it back, which is why I think like the B2B space to me is a little bit more exciting and a bit more lucrative at, uh, from the start because these are businesses that like tens of thousands of dollars will cycle through yearly. And so that's like a lot more money than your average consumer here. I hope that answers the question. It's a bit of a ramble, but. Definitely. It does. Now, let's hone in on the venture scalable businesses. Because a lot of money is going into tech or has gone to tech for the past few years, we do definitely see some models that may not be ideally venture scalable, but going on to raise tech companies. What are the ideal in the African space? What are the set of problems that 
can attract successfully venture capital and succeed at it? And what are some of the ones, again, this might be controversial, what are some of the ones that you feel like have gotten that but might not succeed because of just how the problem is phrased and how the African market works? I think there's a, there's a lot of parts to this because I think there's like, um, you know, which models of venture scale, which ones aren't, which ones like actually have an opportunity to become venture scale, not meaning like the models venture scale, but like, can it in Africa be venture scale is, a, is another question. What does venture scale in Africa even mean? I think that's like, that to me is the first question. And to me, it's like, I don't know, like you look at the value of like all the acquisitions that have happened in the continent. None have been over a billion, to my knowledge. And I think if you if you listed Africa's seven or eight unicorns, like I don't think any of them would be. There's one or two that I think would definitely be would stay as at a billion, but like in public markets, probably most of them wouldn't be. If Flutterway went public today, would they keep that three billion? I don't know. <laughs> uh, so like you know, I think it's like what does venture scale mean to me? And I think the way that I position my fund and that I will continue to do that is like. How do you invest in companies early and then like expect them to hit an outcome that's like a good outcome in Africa, uh, but like an exceptional outcome in Africa, but for the rest of the world, probably not that huge. And to me, that's like, you know, I modeled my second fund off a 200 to like $300 million acquisition as the final outcome, not a billion dollars, but like that level acquisition, because I think that's more likely than having that. That's that's more what we see here. Yeah, so that's my like general take. Uh, so you know what opportunities can be valued at that and have a good multiple um, without like burning a shit ton of cash and essentially being like almost like PE instead of um, instead of VC. I don't know. Like I think you look at a lot of the companies that are growing now, and it's like it's questionable whether they're VC or PE. Like M Pharma, like they are in pharmacies. Like is that a venture scale model uh, that should be raising? And, you know, are they raising it like uh, VC multiples? I don't think so. I'm not sure. Um, amazing company and like really cool idea. But like that's like positioning that as VC is, is interesting. Can you really get like a neobank to be a billion dollar company here? Don't know. Uh, I don't know where Cuda is today, but I think they'd be like the leading one. Um, but, you know, what was their last Val? Uh, and not just publicly disclosed Val, but like you know, the actual last valuation. I don't know. It's really hard. Like, cause again, we're working with such less, like we have such less infra and we have such less money. And so the, the places where you can actually find these big opportunities are like way harder to find. They're not as obvious. Yeah. And then I guess like, what else on venture scale? Yeah. I don't know. I think they're like, th those are my general thoughts on how I think about venture scale. I think a little bit more on like, what are the metrics for the next raise and then the next raise? Um, so when we look at like a company, it's like, okay, what do they need to do to hit this next milestone? And then the next milestone, what does that look like? And that's a lot, like, that's where a lot of my thinking goes instead of like, how does this become a billion dollar company? It's kind of like, can you have a good outcome with this one company here? Yeah. Hopefully that was, there was something useful in that. And, and the other thing is like, this is just like my way of thinking. It could be entirely off, right? And I think people have a lot of different theses to me. This is just like what I, my take on things. There's been a lot of conversation recently around African companies who predominantly sell their products in local currencies, which are highly, highly susceptible to inflation, raising in USD or other global currencies, right? What are your thoughts on that, especially on the return of the money to investors who expect the money, obviously, to be in the currencies they raise in? 
Uh, it's tough. It's tough because like currency risk is so real. Like imagine the Naira floats and your the value of your company just like your revenue decreases by thirty percent. So that happened a lot a couple months ago. It's tough. I don't know. Like I think I don't know what the answer is other than you want to be. This is why like startups need to launch in different markets because it's not safe to just be in one. There's so much risk and not just like currency risk, also governmental risk, like political risk, regulation. Yeah, I don't. Know. That, that's the only sort of comment I have is like. Startup, I, I wrote this article called Launching to Survive. And the whole idea is like startups have this really, especially in Africa, ha, like they're playing in hard mode because they have to like do well in a market and like be frugal so they don't overspend. But then they have to be in different markets because they can't just be in one because what happens if the currency gets slashed or like you miss like the government like takes you to court because of some regulation or some bullshit. It's you have to be in multiple markets. So yeah, I think it's like it, it's this really fine line that startups have to toe. I mean, I wanted to ask you something because we have been talking a lot about companies and the industries, but maybe to look at um, innovation capacity, because I had a flashback to a conversation I had with a corporate VC of an international energy firm and kind of they created their thesis and for a global market. And then they eventually expanded towards Africa. And from what they said, they were struggling to find the innovations they were looking at. So this is a large multinational. So they are looking to acquire or invest into companies that maybe later on they could use their technologies in case of successful for, at a larger scale. And initially, initially to me, I thought, yeah, I, I felt it's quite obvious because we are probably more looking at business model innovation rather than maybe um, tech innovations. But um, but that was a base assumption by me without really thinking deeply to it. So. I would like to know what you think about maybe the actual tech innovation capacity that you see and find on the continent. It's different. Like you have to build in, okay, like even looking at payments, right? If you want to solve for payments on the continent, you need to like incorporate all of these different forms of mobile money. You need to like be able to settle into different banks. You need to collect that money. There's like so many steps and like it is all unique to like the one country or jurisdiction that you're in. If you want to accept payments in Kenya, you have to repeat that process in Tanzania, Uganda, like everywhere. And so like, I think this is to say, like, I think tech innovation is like pretty localized uh, at a lot of levels. And it's not like, it's hard because it's not like you innovate in tech in the US and now you have 300 million consumers with a lot of money to distribute that to, or, you know, like X like you know million businesses um it's like you manage to do it in one market uh and then you you kind of have to repeat again so yeah i don't know like i don't think i i think tech innovation and then i i don't know how complex like i know like in pet so mobile money is like huge in terms of tech innovation um and like africa's money story or fintech story is mobile money it's like a success story here I'm not sure where else we've seen that innovation. Maybe I'm not looking hard enough, but I'm not sure where I've seen that innovation being like specific to Africa. Um, it's more, I think it's more about the use case and like the market you find and how you can use tech to, to build around that use case. So that, that to me sounds a bit more like business model innovation. What do you think? Yeah, but I mean, the use case, I mean, I'm looking at it. I lived in Nigeria for three years and I mean, just from without looking at the tech or anything, it's like payments are not working. I mean, it's it's just in reality, it doesn't work yet. Like, yes, we have a booming startup um, ecosystem. We have fintechs, we have companies that are unicorns or at valuation of unicorns in that particular space. And when I look at it, I feel like if somebody would, I mean, 
it's surely complex, but if somebody would truly solve the problem of payments in that country, I feel that company rolls over the continent because that complexity is, is so much, but I'm not sure... I'm not sure that many of them truly are working towards solving the the core problems or it's like, yeah, you get access and that makes you enough money or you play that game and then you just continue that. So that's kind of where my thinking is about that. My thoughts around payments in a lot of African, West African countries is it's not that payments are not necessarily working. It's just... Commerce and retail is just there's no incentive for people to receive payment at commerce and retail, which which is what kick off the idea of what we're we're building a mellow. It's just that the payment infrastructure exists. The retail doesn't have any incentive. They don't want to use it. And payment where they are comfortable paying with cash. And I think that's just a, a bigger barrier to build. And when you unplug that, you, you, you get to find a lot more problems there than the average person would, 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 would think is this. But anyway, we'll see um, who eventually is able to hack that because it's more cultural contest than it's just a technology problem. Anyway, let's talk, about, let's talk about what is happening in the ecosystem now, which is around a lot of founders having raised a lot of money, money that is globally competitive. And then somehow their company is closing down because of a lot of financial malfeasance. Who are we to blame? Founders or investors? Because the argument for the average person would be first, well, if the investors do their work very well, maybe not so much. The founders they select will do that. And then also there is the accountability that you have to give to the, to the founders to saying, well, they have to, be, they have to be personally accountable. Play the blade game or you just sit where and you have a different perspective to it. No, like founders have a responsibility to take care of money that they raise. And when you don't do that, it's like, yeah, it's irresponsible, but it's also just like bad for all of us. Like what, you know, Float and Dash have done to Ghana's startup ecosystem. Not good. Like I think like, you know, I don't know, will those investors ever come back to Africa? That's sort of the question we ask. And these are big investors that have like, you know, billions under management. And like we burn a bridge with them because of the actions of individuals. So it's like, that's not good. And that's really, that's like not, that's the opposite of a vote of confidence in the continent. But like, yeah, VC should do better and they should try to DD better. But it's also like, that's not the game that a lot of these guys are playing. Like when they were investing in 2021 and 2022, it was about momentum. It was like, Tiger's got all this money and they think that the best thing to do is deploy it as quickly as possible. And hey, Africa's untouched and we're seeing some success. So let's just deploy it. So like it's yeah it's on VCs but they I think they knew the game they were playing and they lost and it's like they're feeling it now so they lose anyway so I don't know I think like I would say like I would I would uh, I, I'm a bit more pissed at like the founders for what it means for us for the rest of the ecosystem but I think the other thing people are going to talk about are like the local VCs because who gets like who gets the founder of Dash the intro to um, like inside partners it's the first investor. And they have the most incentive for them to raise a mega round. And those guys like should have a relationship with the founders and should know them. And if you're going to share an invest like a, a company to another VC, like you better know what's going on and be aware of what's happening. And in a lot of cases, all these guys had local VCs who'd already invested. And like you said, Daniel, like the job of like a, a pre-seed fund is to sell to a seed fund. 
and then from a seed fund to a series A fund. So like their job is like they're incentivized by, you know, using Dash as the example, getting Dash that massive seed round. Um, so who invested in Dash first? <laughs> Uh, and like, you know, and who made the introduction? I think that th those are the questions like people aren't really asking. Again, I'm sitting here as an interviewer. So while I may have my own takes on this, I want to ask you the question again on how some of these founders have noticeable repeat mistakes in their past and they still get access to the funding. Do you feel like, especially going back to the perspective on local inv investors, do you just feel like what some people expect is what the VC space is around is just a couple of friends and people who know each other doubling down on their resources and spaces to just get their friends in? Is that also what you think? Because if it's really a contestant, like if it really was to contest people's ability to build, to execute, then probably there may be enough evidence to show that some people have already not done that with resources they had in the past? Okay, that, that's a really good question. I, I don't know. In, in this specific case, I have no idea. Uh, and like, <laughs> I, I don't know. But I, like, I will say, VC is a relationship-based game. Uh, and it's about who you know and who you'll trust with your money. Because at the end of the day, you're trusting someone to go do something that is like, not impossible, but very, very difficult. And you don't do that just based on reading a you know a piece of paper or a memo or the stats. You do that by building a relationship with someone and trusting them as a human. So that's like, I think that's something that's important to know. So if I have a relationship with someone who I think can go do the things, I've seen them in action, I've, I've, like, I have that relationship, I'm more likely to go for them than a founder who maybe can build, but um, I haven't seen them at work. Um, it's also why a lot of VC funds will pass on a deal, but then keep up to date just to see how they operate and keep catching up with those founders. That's the first thing. The second thing is like, as a VC, like you're trying to get an insane outcome. You're trying to get like a big jackpot win. Everyone's like, yo, why would like uh, Andreessen Horowitz give Adam Newman $300 million to like go and start another company? It's like, you're like, he, he built a really big company. Like, I would bet on him again. Like, yeah, maybe it's unethical, but like if you're going to trust someone to go take a massive swing, it's these people who are a bit nuts and these people who are a bit like, you know, like can can actually manage that money and not manage that money, but they are like, they're people who have done it before, maybe failed, but you think that on their next swing, they can do it again because they've come close or they showed some tendency. Uh, it's also why a lot of VCs back sort of repeat founders. So, I don't know if like if I knew someone who failed at a startup and was like, OK, let's go take another swing. And they were asking for a lot of money to do something and they got maybe close last time. I'd give I, I would probably wouldn't like, um, you know, I would consider giving the money to do it again. Obviously, there's the whole ethical side. And like, I think that's the thing we haven't talked about, which is like um, if what they had done previously was not ethical, like I wouldn't do that. But I would consider if they had just tried, failed and they wanted to try again. So as we're going towards the end of the conversation, what is the most interesting thing about Africa's tech ecosystem right now? What's your coverage? What do you feel like are the, what do you potentially see the winners and, and, and being? I don't want to focus on the losers for now. What, where do you see the potential big winners, home runs are going to be? We've seen the likes of Paystack get an acquisition that, you know, excite a lot of interest into the ecosystem. We've seen a similar PayPal mafia effect on 
um, Paystack founders, with a lot of them going out, getting into YC, building companies. Where do you see the next biggest opportunities being? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's like, I, I don't know. It's our question, though. It's like our job to try to find that out. But I think we're going to see a lot more m and So we're going to see a lot more startup deaths, for sure. Like, it's just started. This is, like, so much more coming. So that's going to be rough. But I think, like, you will have good companies that are actually operating okay that come together with other companies or they get bought. And these won't be, like, you know, $200 million acquisitions. They might not even be, like, you know, $30 million acquisitions. But they'll be, like... Enough that people will get something um, and enough that those the alumni of those companies will go and start their next thing. And I think that's really cool because we need these smaller wins to like catalyze the ecosystem. I don't think we can depend on like global capital as much now, given what's happening. Um, and so I think like having this like in like input into the ecosystem that's like more cyclical, like it's us buying each other, comp- like each other's companies, et cetera, is probably a really good thing. Um, Money Point, for instance, is like one of the most, to me, one of the most exciting companies to watch this year. Um, and it's just going to have an insane run, I think. But they're going to buy, like they're buying a company here um, in Kenya and they, they'll probably buy more, right? Um, so it's like, what are the companies that are buying other ones and like how would they really stimulate um, our ecosystem? They're also investing into other companies. Um, I think that's the trend that that's going to be the most the most beneficial for the ecosystem. So that's something I'm excited for. What is going to be tough is like, um, or what we need to brace ourselves for, are like more of these startup deaths from companies that like raised a lot of money in 2021 um, or 22 or 2020 even, um, but couldn't manage it well. Uh, or like, I think we're going to hear about like a lot more companies that are kind of just like shells. Um, they're running on fumes, but they have so much runway that they can like just do nothing. <laughs> uh, and everyone sits on a nice salary for like four or five years. So I don't know. That's that's my take uh, on on what we can expect. But who knows? Like maybe I'm wrong, or maybe we won't have as many deaths, and like we'll have successes. Like we'll see. One of the things you cover is also individual ecosystems. What do you think are the ecosystems that are underlooked at? You know, um, underrated ecosystems in Africa that potentially could see you know, massive developments or we can see potential big wins from those ecosystems. Obviously, the most popular are Nigeria, Egypt, South Africa, Kenya. Which other ones do you think are most promising? I think outside of the big four, there's like a handful. Um, there's a handful of like ecosystems that are super exciting and you can get to know them if you see, if you spend time there. Like I was in Tanzania last month, two months ago, and I was like, Pumped. I was like really excited by like what was coming out of there and the founders. Um, Cote d'Ivoire, like really nice, tightly knit ecosystems. I think it's these ecosystems where there's a tight ecos- like tight uh, community and they all support each other. Um, and, you know, you think about like even Estonia, right? Uh, 1.3 million people in this country, but Skype came out of there. And so now there's like 11 unicorns from that country. Uh, that's like, that's insane. That's uh, like a crazy number. Like why is this from there? Skype is from there, Bolt is from there, um, and they have this really tight ecosystem. Yeah, but that took like, you know, 20 years to develop, I guess. And so like, what are the ecosystems that are super tight and you have these exceptional founders um, that are building for the long term and you have also like the government structures that enable that. Um, I think when you have those two things, it gets really interesting. Okay, lastly, I want you to talk 
to us about your syndicate that you have. If there are people who are listening to the podcast and are interested in joining, how they can get involved in that. Yeah. So, okay. So techsafari.io, um, sign up to the newsletter. Uh, when you sign up, you should get an email, which gives you a link to apply for the syndicate. Um, and yeah, just put in your details. And if you, yeah, if it all checks out, you'll get added and you'll start receiving emails from us on deals we're investing in. Excellent. This has been the Chin Africa podcast with Caleb Maru, who is the founder of Tech Safari and is investor at Prosimity Ventures. It's been an exciting conversation, deep diving into Africa's tech ecosystem, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And thank you very much, Caleb, for joining us. Thanks, guys. This is so fun. The Change Africa podcast is produced by Isaac Abwa and Daniel Murky. It is executive produced by Tim Yarstratus. The theme music and digital production is by Daniel Quay and graphic design by Andrew Ayi. This podcast is a production of Nexa Media. Music